Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I am Reagan Kelly, and this week I am joined by two awesome co-hosts, plus a guest. Me, Nate Heininger. Shane Kelly, the brother. And this week I am joined by guest Eric Ferraro. Eric is a longtime friend of the show and a special guest for this episode, which I'm very excited to have you have him on for reasons that will become clear in a moment. Uh, but Eric is the developer of Meteor Fall, a, a really excellent uh, roguelike deck builder game for mobile. Uh, and uh, he's going to help us talk today about Slay the Spire, a deck building roguelike game for PCs and consoles and Nintendo Switch. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So if you listened to last week's episode, you know that we've just launched a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash the short game to support what we're doing here on the show. And uh, any supporter at a, the dollar a month level or higher uh, gets access to our Discord, which is where we talk about the games that we're playing in real time, have a sort of a video game book club that leads up to the discussions that happen on this show. So if you want that sort of behind the scenes access, if you want to come chat with us about the games that you're playing, uh, if you just want to come make jokes about us in our presence. That's fine. Just do that. <laughs> and uh, at a dollar a month or more on our Patreon page, you can come join our Discord, which is we're really excited to have to start building that community. So we'll talk more a little bit about this at the end of the show. Yeah, I was surprised at the amount of people who seem to be paying us money simply to come in and make fun of us in our Discord. But you know what? That's fine. Whatever gets you uh, into the community, we're happy to have you. <laughs> Uh, it's been a ton of fun getting to interact with, uh, the people that have already supported us, uh, in the discord and, um, just get to talk to more of you. It's and it's awesome. already been paying dividends for the show because I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, but Eric, uh, is one of our Patreon supporters, which is what put us in touch, uh, and got the ball rolling for this episode. So I'm very glad. Thank you so much, Eric, for supporting <laughs> the short game. And thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. I, I think it's, uh, you know, important to support the community, um, you know, especially podcasts like this that, uh, you know, highlight in, in a lot of cases, indie games and, and content, um, and, you know, like I, I mentioned on Twitter, I think it's great that you guys are, are highlighting uh, short games because, you know, as a uh, person who has to work full time, I don't have as much time to play games as I used to. Uh, and I think you're doing a great service for the community and I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, we love doing the show and uh, we're not out here trying to make a, a business out of this. We just want to uh, expand the kinds of games that we're able to cover and try to highlight stuff that we might not otherwise be able to having even just a small budget for the show will help us do that more effectively. And we're really hoping for everybody's support. So thank you so much. I'm pretty excited to have you on because I was a bit nervous doing an episode about this game because I am extremely bad at it. This is not my genre exactly. Uh, but we chatted on Twitter for a while and uh, I played Meteor Fall as soon as it came out when it was, well, I don't know if it was as soon as it came out, pretty early on, I think, a while back. And uh, it was just exciting to uh, to have a contact who knows this style of game well enough to build one who can come on and talk to us a little bit about Slay the Spire, which is uh, getting a lot of positive reaction now that it's finally out of its early access period and out on Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I I know um, with Meteor Fall specifically, I got very, very obsessed with your game and beat it with every character that ex that uh, was available at that time. And I think, um, you know, we, we've actually talked about it on the show uh, multiple times. Um, at least I know I have because I really, really enjoyed it. And then when I was actually playing Slay the Spire, I was like, 
oh, this is like Meteor Fall. That was actually my my like connection to previous games. And so it's really exciting to have you on, not only to talk a little bit about your game, but also to talk about, uh, you know, this game. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's interesting for me is when I was working on on Meteor Fall, um, I think it was uh, when I released Meteor Fall, I think it was around, ta- around the same time Slay the Spire came out. Uh, and so I hadn't actually played Slay the Spire while I was working on Meteor Fall. Sort of, uh, I played it after. Uh, and um, the, the game that Meteor Fall was based on was more uh, Dream Quest, which I'm sure we'll talk about here. Mm. Um, but but I, I wish I had played Slay the Spire because I think I would have made some different design, design decisions in Meteor Fall uh, if I had played Slay the Spire first. Yeah, it's funny to think of, like, I, I, I think of, uh, of Meteor Fall as coming way before Slay the Spire. But of course, Slay the Spire came out on early access on PC way back. And I, I don't often follow that sort of the like early access PC games. Um, but like, I don't know, uh, you must have had some connection with the genre of like roguelikes or deck builders or both. Like what kind of drew you to obviously make one of your own? What drew you to play Slay the Spire? Yeah, um, I mean, the the game that uh, inspired me and um, you know as far as I'm concerned is sort of the uh, the mother of the kind of this subgenre of card based roguelikes was a, a game called Dream Quest mm. uh, you know it which you know as like uh, you know like I mentioned uh, you know it's, it's a card based deck building game um, it takes place on a grid and there's different monsters uh, each monster has a deck uh, and, and there's sort of you know in this kind of subgenre there's this you know game loop which is you start with a basic deck with not so great cards. You fight monsters. You earn gold. You earn experience. You level up. Uh, you improve your cards. You uh, refine your deck, uh, and you know get stronger and stronger and, and take on you know harder bosses and things like that. Uh, so that was sort of the the genesis of the idea behind uh, Meteor Fall. I never actually played Dream Quest, and I, I think it, it's a game that's so well regarded, and I've bounced off of it multiple times, and I. I can partly blame that on the fact that it's, uh, you know, it's from this genre that I think it takes a little something special to like truly hook me with, but also it's just a, it's just like a weird looking game. Like what a weird looking game. How did that get popular with such a weird looking art style? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, I think, I mean, I I think it's, it's sort of unfortunate. Um, you know, the, the art style I think turns off a lot of people and it's hard to get over. Um, It is, and as, and yeah, and as a gamer, like, that the the style matters to me. I think um, the only reason I was able to, to stick with Dream Quest is the mechanics are are so strong. Uh, the guy that uh, designed it, I think his name is Peter Whalen, uh, went on to Blizzard to work on Hearthstone. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he was one of the main designers behind the. Uh, I think it's called the Dungeon Run, uh, the single player mode in Hearthstone. And again, that he basically, it, it sounds like went to Blizzard and, and developed a very similar, you know, mode in Hearthstone where, again, you start with a basic deck, you add cards to it, uh, you try and build on these different synergies. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's a testament to how strong the mechanics are that Dream Quest is as popular as it is because, you know, it's definitely not the graphics that are drawing people in. Yeah, I still play uh, Hearthstone uh, from time to time. I was actually playing recently, and they do a thing that's called the Tavern Brawl, where it's like a, new, a whole new game style every week. And it feels like like 30% of the time, it's some sort of deck-building style of of gameplay. Uh, it's also, so it's interesting, too, because like to me, the the 
the vast majority of my deck building experience has come from actual like physical card games. Uh, and I've played several of the video games, but mostly like obviously Dominion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, yeah, probably my number one experience with, uh, with deck building is Dominion. Right. There's another mm-hmm. one called Star Realms, uh, which is mm-hmm. a big yeah. fan of. And then I talked about it on the uh, last board game episode, but like that genre has exploded in board games as well. So using deck building as a means to control a more classical game style like Crank, which was like a dungeon building or uh, sorry, dungeon uh, crawling game using deck building as its mechanics, similar to like how Slay the Spire or Meteor Falls sort of like that dungeon crawling or just monster defeating game and and in slay the spire it's almost like a turn-based tactics game using deck building as its mechanics it's just interesting to see how like it's almost like deck building is becoming more just like a core mechanic like having i don't know like an rpg character or like a d-pad or like it's a platformer or it's like a pinball game or whatever it's like deck building is like the seed of it and then it's how you control your character it's been really interesting to see how that the genre has grown. One of the things I think is really interesting about that as a kind of a growth genre or a grow, a growing mechanic is that it comes so much out of this like 25 year history of collectible card games. You know, um, you know, I, I grew up playing magic, the gathering and I still play it pretty regularly. I've gotten very much back into it, uh, these last couple of years. And, um, when Dominion came out, I really think Dominion was the first game that really took that collectible card game uh, managed randomness uh, element and turned it into something that was, you know, in a box ready to go uh, and where the deck building itself was part of the gameplay. So um, that, that's, that was like a huge innovation right there. Yeah. Um, and what is kind of interesting to me is how well, like how well all of that, which has this, you know, multi-decade history of being multiplayer, how well all that adapts to single-player experiences. So, you know, everything up through Dominion, um, you know, I I can't remember exactly the first time I played something that had deck building in a single-player experience, but it is becoming more and more uh, more and more common. Yeah, and something I, I think is really interesting about that is as as that deck building mechanic that I, I mean, I, I assume it originated with things like Dominion. I'm sure that Dominion wasn't like absolutely the er deck builder, but like it. I think it is. Well, if, even if it is, that's that's a case where like a mechanic from tabletop games has made its way into video games without sort of filing off the serial numbers. Um, what's sort of interesting to me about that is like, you know, the, you look at, Tons of mechanics, like look at things like D&D, the, uh, the mechanics originated on dice and paper and, and cards and boards and all of that. And when that mechanic makes its way over to uh, over to video games, the physicality of like a, you know, rolling dice gets abstracted away into, you know, click on a thing and watch the numbers pop out of it and it dies. And you don't have to think about dice and you don't have to think about like uh, managing a character sheet in the same way that you do about something like a, like a, a you know, role-playing game or, or board game mechanics usually just sort of make it into, into uh, games. You're not thinking about the like moving chips of cardboard around when you're playing uh, civilization, but like 
card and deck building made its way into video games without dropping the cards. It's still cards, which I think is kind of surprising. I wonder why yeah. that is. Like no one's sort of filed that off. It's not that it should be. I think it's it's like it's cool, but like I think people like cards. But well, I, I think that's the whole point of it, though. Like, so I think you know it, whether it was Dominion or not. Though I'm pretty sure it was. Like, you know, anyone who's been into collectible card games knows that like the actual game of playing your deck against someone else is only like half of the half the thing, right? Is like yeah. making your deck building your deck, putting together like the optimal strategy and then seeing it in fruition was like the whole thing. It's from start to finish. And so when they, you know, whatever genius first figured it out was like, (laughs) well, what if we actually just make a game that is about that? And it's like, oh yeah, that is actually for a lot of people, the more fun thing about collectible card games was Mm -hmm. making your deck. It's certainly not the spending money part. (laughs) <laughs> right. Or well, and Magic has done it too with the draft system yeah. where, you know, everyone goes around and opens up new decks of cards and passes them around and you do deck building in live action, Absolutely. right? That is my favorite way to uh to play Magic. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting way and it's it's that managed chaos, that managed risk. You know, you're right, most video games sort of obscure it, but every game you're sort of setting up systems you're sort of creating your character to be able to react in a certain way or or whatever to handle whatever thing is in front of you and it's generally obscured but like the nice thing about deck building is it is like a constant sort of instant gratification you're like yeah i put that card in there and now i pulled it and it was great that i pulled it it's fun now and then i'm gonna shuffle my deck and like I'm going to get it again and I'm going to get it again. And it's like a constant reminder when it's going well of like, yeah, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I made a little machine that is like crushing whatever version of a deck builder game that I'm playing, whether it's dominion and I'm trying to like get like money and like defeat my friends or it's slay the spire. And I'm trying to like gain attacks and attack power and blocks or things like that. You're, you're just like constantly reminded of your own decisions. And I think that's like, a really fun element of it. Can I call out some elements of this game that I think are unique uh, to deck builders that I've played? My experience with deck builders is uh, colored a whole lot by Dominion and, and mainly tabletop games. But one of the things that I think is interesting in Slay the Spire um, is that a lot of the times in deck building games and a lot of other kinds of games like engine building style games, the goal is to figure out a way to snowball and, uh, you know, until you become an unstoppable force. Uh, and that's how you break through the really big spikes in difficulty that are represented in games like this by bosses or new kinds of enemies. And some of that is handled very differently here than in deck builders that I have played. So one thing that is different is that uh, your number of actions, uh, barring these relic things that you get, is pretty consistent throughout. And in other deck builders, a lot of what you're trying to do is essentially buy more actions by getting cards or other things that allow you to do a lot of card draw or play more actions in a turn. Dominion is like this. Uh, You know, it's inspired by Magic the Gathering, where you're, you know, you're constantly playing new lands, which allow you to spend more mana on each of your turns. 
Yeah, Meteor Fall feels like you get a lot of actions in each every turn, much more than I feel like you get in this game. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Yeah, and with Dominion, it's like everyone is like, oh, does that card give me plus one action? That will be the only thing I buy so I can have these ridiculous turns where I end up playing like 13 cards. And I only ended up with like three gold, but I sure played a lot of my cards. And it was I think fun. In, in practice in Slay the Spire, you, you end up with a lot of turns like that. Um, like with some classes like the the silent where you're, you know, yeah. you can play way more cards than you think you should be a than you yeah. should be able to. Yeah, well, I think we'll talk about the classes in a little bit, but it definitely like to your point, Shane, like I think the silent is about like adding more actions. Everyone else, it's kind of like you have your set amount and it scales yeah. a little bit, but not much. Yeah, you you basically, I mean, I played the most with the Ironclad, and you get those three actions, and if you, you know, if you don't take, like, curses and things like that, it's pretty hard to get any more, uh, any more actions. And so, to me, I think that keeps you really focused on having a really tuned deck. You have to have uh, every one of those three points every turn really matter. And that's even more emphasized by... What I think is also a little bit strange about this game, which is the way that it handles the hand. Like, I'm used to games where hand management, I play a lot of magic, and in magic, the very best words that you could see on a card is draw a card. Uh, because, you know, if you run out of cards in your hand, you have run out of gas and you will lose the game. Um, and in Slay the Spire, um, you are completely discarding. And then completely refilling your heart, your hand at the start of every turn, which means you go through your deck much faster. Uh, and this deck size being really small doesn't doesn't really matter. So because it'll just refresh and refill with every hand. So um, it plays very differently from a lot of these kinds of games that I have played in the past, where you are constantly growing your deck in order to add more action chains to it or yeah. where you are are doing a, a a a lot to kind of manage the size of your hand and those kind of those kind of concerns go away the stuff that does snowball in this is stuff that it really takes from the roguelike side which are things like conditions buffs and debuffs mm. and uh your hp so that was really different and interesting to me because managing a lot of different conditions uh, is something that is very much on the video gamey side of this and not in the tabletop gamey side of this. Yeah. So, so that's kind of an interesting mix. That's why, so I, I kind of said it earlier, like this game has a lot of similarities to me with like a JRPG, but with deck building as its mechanic rather than selecting each character in your party. Because you're you're managing more like the status and the and the... Well, like instead of saying, okay, my mage is going to cast wizard and that's it's a wizard. <laughs> my mage. <laughs> cool game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my mage is going to cast blizzard uh, and that's the mage's turn. Uh, in this, you're saying I'm going to use, I have three actions. So I'm going to use my one card that is like seven damage to all enemies uh, or maybe a, I'm going to use do this one card that applies vulnerability to, uh, you know, to the enemy that uh, makes it more impacted later. It's a, you know, a standard debuff. And so 
you're more you're managing like characters, but you're also managing like the overall battle and the overall scene. Whereas a lot of deck building, it's like each turn is its own little moment. And whenever you're done with that moment, it's done. You you discard like Dominion. It's like you go as far as you can on that turn. And when you discard, everything you were doing is done and gone and it's that's it. And then you do the next turn. This is like you're managing like a party, but the party is one character and then your tools are your are your cards. I think um you mentioned uh you know JRPG and I, I think that's a, a good comparison. Um and I think it, it also sort of highlights uh what is kind of interesting about this genre, which is that you know, a JRPG, uh, you know, often you kind of just pick one strategy and kind of stick to it, like your mage cast fireball or whatever. But with, but with these deck builders, you have to be a lot more thoughtful about, you know, creating that engine um, that will allow you to, you know, overcome the challenge, uh, the order you play cards. Uh, so I think there's a lot more strategy, you know, in, in terms of the actual battle compared to, uh, you know, most JRPGs. Yeah, and you're you're constantly doing like tiny little head math, right? Because it's like, okay, I have three actions, I have six cards, and I've got three things that are trying to attack me. One of them is going to do five damage, but he has two health. One of them is going to buff its partners, and it has 20 health, and another one is going to attack me for 15, and it has 12 health. And it's like, okay, I could focus all my attacks on the one that's going to attack me for 15, use all my actions to kill it, but that'll actually reduce the attacks that are coming to me because I'm killing the thing that's about to do 15. Um, That's going to be my whole turn. I'm going to use only attacks, or I could use only blocks and kill the thing that is going to just do two damage, which will ultimately swing the fight in my favor because I'm only dealing with two things and I have extra attacks for late. You know, it's like that constant little you know you're adding up constantly what you're what what's incoming how do you mitigate what's incoming and how do you maximize what's outgoing can i uh, call out something that i i think is worth mentioning about what you're describing there which is in this game um you have not complete but but very good on foreknowledge of what the enemy will do on each turn i think that's really valuable to this game being able to understand what your opponent is going to do allows you to really strategize with your cards in a way that I don't think other you know games of this style really really give you. Uh, I, I haven't actually. I apologize. I have not played uh, your game, Eric, but it sounds like everybody else has. I don't know if that's a feature in yours, but uh, I, I think that's really. It, it reminds me of, of a game that we loved from last year, um, Into the Breach. Yeah, I was about um, to say the same thing. Yeah, that perfect. Yeah. that perfect knowledge of what the enemy is going to do, uh, which turns a fight into a bit of a puzzle uh, because it becomes it becomes about mitigating and gaining incremental uh, advantage. Whereas, you know, if you don't know what the enemy will do, then it it becomes a little bit more about playing with caution and uh, being. Uh, more tactically smart, but but in this, it's more about just sort of trying to play around what you know the enemy is going to do, which I think is an interesting an interesting way to handle this kind of combat. It's not uh, quote unquote realistic, but I guess nothing in this game is realistic. But it it really does play well. I think um, 
Yeah, I think that's like a, a really critical feature and probably one of the the most important innovations uh, in the game is, is having that perfect info. Uh, the One of the developers did a talk at GDC uh, about the different systems they tried um, and how they ended up landing on this particular system with perfect info. Um, and I think, you know, in a game where you have all these cards in your hand and you're trying to, you know, manage your energy effectively, having that perfect information, uh, I think you're right, does sort of turn into like a puzzle or sort of a resource management type game. Uh, it's not something that I have in Meteor Fall, but in the the new game I'm working on, Crummit's Tale, uh, I use a system very similar to uh, Slay the Spire, where you have perfect info about the attacks and things the enemy is uh, planning to use. Uh, because I think it makes for more thoughtful gameplay than just sort of guessing whether you need to defend or something like that. Like, I, I also think it's just like, it's more fun, right? So if you, if you have cards that only do block and you are going to spend an in turn not knowing whether that block is worthwhile or not, if you play that and then they don't attack at all, you're going to be like, well, that was stupid, Right. So instead, every decision you make is going to have the consequence that you decided on. Right. So you are in control top to bottom. We kind of talked about it all throughout, but I, I think probably the thing that set this game apart from games like this, the most right off the bat for me was how defensive it is. The The mechanic of it is pretty simple. Um, you know, you can play attack cards or you can play defense cards. And then once you get a little farther into the game, many cards do both. So you might have cards that add to your block damage, you know, block total while also attacking or while doing other sorts of effects. Um, but that's, that was a bit of a surprise for me. I don't know, like, I don't think I've played a lot of games that handle defense quite this way, where defense is always an action. You know, defense is usually like, here's my, here's my armor stat or some similar thing like that. And it's just, you know, this is how defensive I'm able to be. And maybe you have things that will buff that. But here, you know, you know that, if you look at those enemies and you see that they have an attack value that's on deck of 10, then you would better have 10 on your block stack at the end of that turn, or you're going to take damage. This game is so unwilling to hand out healing, right? It's just, there's not a lot of options to heal in this game. And the, the healing is always at a cost to other sorts of empowerment that you're, uh, you know, being able to not take damage is like supremely important. And so it's, it's really interesting. I, I really thought that was the sort of give and take of like, I need to do damage, but I really, really need to play block constantly was a kind of a cool trade off and back and forth, you know, deciding when I was willing to take an extra couple of damage in order to pull off a really sick combo or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think you know, Eric, you, you said it, um, but like resource management, is is a really that's how I I have definitely always kind of viewed roguelikes, um and, and this game absolutely uh is almost the it, it, to me that is like the the way to view it if you want to consistently be like effective in this game because this is a game that is purely trying to drain your resources everything is trying to either take your HP take your cards your the opportunity cost of what you can draw. Um, reduce your strength, reduce your abil ability to um, to sustain damage, everything. And so you have to, the game is a constant balance of like, okay, I have full HP, so I'm going to trade 2 HP for an extra 10 damage on this turn because I think that will ultimately mean I will lose less HP on the next round. Or I'm going to take 
this card because that gives me more of the resource that I think my deck is lacking right now. I'm not doing a lot of attack, so I need to increase my ability to access the resource of attack. Um, it, it's a weird kind of way to look at it, but I think that's actually the more effective way to think about these like grinding, uh, you know, roguelike games. Another thing that I really, really enjoyed about this game is is the map and how you, uh, just like everything else, you sort of make the choice about what your next step is, what your next encounter is. So the map is broken down. If you've played FTL, which I know <laughs> this is like the... We should have a bell we ring whenever you mention FTL on it's this show. It's been a while. It's been a while. So doesn't feel uh, like it. Go ahead. I know. Um, so I could do a whole corner on this, why this game is actually closer to FDL than like every other game that says it's like FDL and is not at all like it, but I'll, I'll <laughs> leave that for, join, join the Patreon and we'll get a discord. Uh, <laughs> we'll get, we'll talk about it in the chat. Um, but so I'll leave that aside. But, uh, so every moment, every like combat is instigated by you actually making a, in a selection on the map. So there's. I want to say four or five icons. Basically, there's normal monster attack. There's elite monster attack. There's the shop. There is a like event question mark, which can be either a little bit of like actually kind of fun storytelling. Uh, you know, we we have not talked about the story in this game at all because it's basically non-existent and the only sort of lore exists in these little question marks where it's like a little bit of interactive fiction where you make decisions or it could also be a chest. It could also be monsters. It could be a shop. It's basically like everything plus these little events. Uh, and then there's a chest and then there's the boss. I, I think that's everything. Yeah, I think so. And, and so you, you start by selecting one and everyone has, it's like a big map, like a big treasure map basically where whatever you selected is normally connected by a dotted line to one or two of these choices. And you can look at the map. You can see what path you're going on. If I select normal combat here, it's going to lead me to only having the option of another normal combat, or it's going to have the option of normal combat and a question mark. And if I choose a question mark, that'll open the path to an elite fight and a, a shop. And you basically continue to make these decisions. And there's some strategy in that. There's some resource management in that because normal fights, if your deck is good and you're feel, and you're at like a reasonable amount of health, they're normally not going to be something that will kill you. Enough of them in the row will drain your HP enough where maybe you die from them. But a single individual normal combat shouldn't really probably kill you if you're at a good spot. An elite may take you, even if you are at full health, if you're not feeling good about your deck, they may kill you. Um, so you you make these decisions constantly based on your resources. Am I at full health? Do I feel good about my deck? Can I take on an elite? Or should I go to the question mark and see what random event I get to see if maybe it makes me better? Or have I collected a lot of gold? Every time you kill a monster, you get gold. Should I go to the shop and maybe buy some more cards or potions or relics and things like that? Um, so every bit of the game, and it's another thing I was saying, talking about earlier, you're making the choice. Like some of it's limited, you know, it's not like every single turn you can say, I want to go to one of these five things, but you can see the entire path for the entire act and you will have the option to sort of build your path and make, make that decision. 
I love the relics in this game, the relic system, which I, I uh, it's pretty simple. Like, you know, mostly you get them through either buying them in shops or you get them through those random events. And the random events were often the most fun ones. And but the relics all have sort of just like a persistent effect on your gameplay. And they're they're not usually super OP or anything like that. But cumulatively, like over the course of a run, you can get looks like, you know, 20 relics, like a lot of relics if you're kind of hunting them out. And they all have little effects on your gameplay. And that was probably the biggest uh, deciding factor on runs that I had that went well versus runs that didn't go as well was these sort of persistent, passive things, powers or buffs or what have you that I would get from relics. So there'd be little things like, um, like I remember I got a, a relic that automatically healed me whenever I picked up money. And so, well, actually, you pick up money a lot in this game. You don't get a lot of health when you do it. But if you have that relic, every time you pick up money, you get a little health. That made a huge difference on that run. And they can be little yeah. things like that. They can be uh, things that, you know, you the very first turn in a combat, you start with one extra energy. Or the very first turn in a combat, you start with, you know, one extra card. Or at the end of combat, you gain, uh, you know, some... You know, probably some extra health or something like that. Little little things like that. They're not usually big transformative things to build an entire run around, but they are always something that like once you see, oh, see, see how it synergizes with the rest of your deck, you can you can plan around them a little bit, and they they all cumulatively once you get a lot of them can make a huge difference in your run. I think it's worth mentioning. Like we're not getting into the nitty gritty of individual relics and cards here because this game is very big. Um, the Gameplay itself, like the map, is is probably the most uh, claustrophobic feeling piece of the game. The the decks are um, very very customizable. There's over 250 cards in the game across the three classes. Uh, those relics, there's more than 150 of them, and there are uh, 50 different, more than 50 different combat encounters in the game. So it would be really hard for us to get in to the level of specific enemies or, or cards or, or relics on this one. Yeah, we are going to talk some strategy uh, at the end of the episode, but yeah, for sure. Um, and, and I think like, you know, Reagan, to your point, like the small stuff, it's what adds up in this game for sure. Also, I'll say killing elites guarantees you a relic. And so mm. that's, that's like the reason why you may pursue killing one of them money and you get a relic. You also get a gold pack that includes three rare cards. So like another way to think about how like things add up. So I got a relic that adds four block at the end of every turn. Well, a basic block card adds five block. So what that meant is on a normal turn, instead of playing a block card, I could play a different card. And like that in and of itself is huge. That opens up the door for me to be able to play an extra attack or an extra skill card or power card or something like that. And over the course of 50 rounds, 50 combat encounters, each consisting of, you know, four to like 12 rounds, like that stuff is going to add up over and over and over and over. And that's the sort of snowball thing where you're actually reducing the amount of other things you need to do, where you can just focus on like damage or, or whatever it is you need to do. Yeah, I think um, the relics are are probably one of the most important parts about Slay the Spire. Um, you know, earlier I was talking about how important the perfect info was. And I think 
the relics are are sort of the second piece of of that puzzle. Um, the what what the relics force you to do is uh, you know take a look at cards you've already seen before, uh, but through a different lens. So a card that's not that good, you know, on its own, you might get a relic that synergizes well with it. So it forces you to think about you know whether that card is worthwhile. Uh, I think. One good example, this card that I was playing with uh, earlier was there's a card called, I think it's called Backpack. Uh, basically, you can draw a card and discard a card or something like that. Uh, and so if you you know have like a curse or some other negative card in your deck, uh, you might look at that card in a different light. You might say like, hey, you know, I can discard this curse so it's not hurting me at the end of my turn or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, with a with a game like this where you're constantly like replaying it again and again, I think having some, a system like Relics uh, that you know allow you to think about things uh, in a different way, I think is really important to helping the game feel fresh. Yeah, for sure. I uh, so a game that I had a victory on the other night where I had a relic that for every curse card I had on my hand, which are generally just objectively bad, right? You, It's a card that you pull when normally you would pull a card that is helpful. This is a card that is hurtful, right? Like can't get much more uh, bad than a negative when it should be a positive. However, this relic meant for every curse card I had in my hand, my character had permanent plus one strength. And for every strength, it's one more damage. And I ended up winning with four curse cards out of I think my deck was 23 cards and four of them were curse cards, which is wow. a pretty high percentage. But like that benefit of plus four strength meant every attack I had did four more damage. And when you're doing three or four attacks around, that's 12 more damage. And it adds up so consistently that like it made me totally rethink whether on that round, whether curse cards were bad. So I was actually like, normally I'd be spending gold and everything to get rid of curse cards. And in this case, I was like, Heck yeah, random event. Give me that curse card. Like that'll, <laughs> you know, that'll help. And that it was like, oh, that's a really cool and fun mechanic. That entire round, which I won on, made me seek curse cards, or or rather at least not feel bad about them, uh, which would have totally been the opposite. I would have been spending half that that run trying to get rid of them. Yeah, I think um you know, I think I think that's a great example of of looking at things uh, through a different lens, and I, I I do think the game would probably be repetitive. Uh, you know, after a few rounds or you know a few runs of of going through, you'd see the same cards again and again. Um, you know, I, I think I think the game would feel you know kind of plain without it. So it's yeah. it's a pretty neat system. Yeah, I do think the relics are probably the largest source of variety in the game. Um, Shane, I think you said that there were two hundred and fifty possible cards across i may be wrong about that but that that actually isn't that like compare that to freaking magic the gathering like that's not a large number of cards um and you do see this like there are in some ways that's a big help you know you do see the same cards again and again and that means that you don't have to relearn you know you're not 17 runs into this game and still learning totally new sets of cards that you've never seen before it's got a small enough number of potential cards that you can draw on that you can kind of comprehend it as a whole and understand what some of the potential um, uh, synergies and so on are without necessarily having to have those cards in front of you. Um, so I, I think it's really smart that these little these relics they're not necess- they're not part of the card system, but they do add a lot of variety. 
while still letting the game kind of keep the card, the, the total card pool manageable enough that a human can comprehend it. Unlike something like, you know, 20 years of Magic the Gathering or even a single year's Magic the Gathering set is, is a <laughs> lot to comprehend as a human being. Yeah. And you get them all when you buy the game. Right. <laughs> Duh, <You know>. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah, that's helpful. I think we should also probably talk a little bit about the three classes in the game. Um, and I, I did play all three, but I was doing poorly enough at this game that I decided to focus on one. So I played almost exclusively the very first class you get, the Ironclad. Um, so from what I can tell, each there's some overlap, but each of the uh, each of the classes has their own sort of card pool, right? Their own set of cards to draw from or like that they get in as part of the, the randomized stuff. And I, since I really only saw a lot of the ironclad, I'm particularly interested to hear like how the strategy differs for the other two. Yeah, for sure. So there's the ironclad, which is your standard sort of like warrior class, if you will, you know, they're going to mostly either focus on high damage or high block. There's not a lot of variety to it outside of that either. Doing a ton of damage. A lot of ways to apply vulnerability for that class. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of um, debuffs, weakness, and and vulnerability, right? Maximizing the way that you deal damage or minimizing the way that you receive damage. After that is the silent, which is more about... So the the big mechanic is that they have something called poison, which you can apply to uh, the enemy... That let's say you apply five poison on their next turn, they're going to take five damage. It's going to reduce to four poison. So on their next turn, they take four damage and it goes down from there. But you can continue to apply poison. And a lot of that class and my experience has been like, you know, a, a certain build is to just continue to apply as much poison as possible. So you're not only doing damage on your turn, but on their turn, they're taking the poison damage uh, and you can get it all the way up to like, you know, I think the most I had someone was like 35 damage or 35 poison. So on their turn, they're taking 35 damage. They also are a lot on card draw and um, adding additional energy so they can do more. Um, but they also don't have a whole lot of block. Like you're really hoping to deal a ton of damage both on your turn and their turn so that they die very fast because you're not going to have as much health and you're not going to have as much block. Um and then there's the defect, which is unlike any of the other ones and has this kind of complicated orb system that allows them to have almost like an aura, if you will, that um, you can have like a lightning orb. So at the end of your turn, every lightning orb you has does three damage to a random enemy. Or there's a frost orb that at the end of your turn does gains two armor and you have three orb slots. So a lot of the game is managing these orbs and creating these systems that like build off of each other. It's, it's hard to explain, honestly. I don't know, Eric, like you've played the defect. Can you explain it any differently? No, I mean, I I think you did a good job explaining it, like just calling it the, the orb system, (sighs) trying to think of how how I would describe it. Um, I mean, it's, it's an, it kind of goes back to the earlier conversation about resource management, where, you know, in addition to managing your energy, you're managing these orbs. uh, And there's sort of this give and take where, you know, you want to keep your orbs there, uh, because they have a passive effect at the end of turn, which you get for free. So, you know, the lightning will, you know, strike an enemy and ice will give you armor. 
Um, but there's certain cards which will allow you to, I think they call it evoke uh, your orbs as well. So then you can spend an orb for a bigger effect. So you kind of have, you know, this, this, um, you know, decision, do I want to keep my orb for the passive effect? Do I want to spend it for the, you know, a bigger effect? Uh, you know, it, it really is quite complicated, but, um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's great that they're, you know, introducing some classes which are not so straightforward and don't really fit into any neat bucket that you've seen before. Yeah, it was really cool. Like when I played the defect, I was like, you know, when you when you play the Ironclad, when you play the Silent, if you've played RPG games before, you're like, okay, I kind of know like what it will likely take for me to be successful with this this type of uh, character with a defect. It was like two or three runs before I fully understood sort of like the system management, and I, it was unlike any other sort of like character that I'd seen before, and it, it was. Like the the possibility for decks and builds and systems seemed significantly higher than that. I could see a way to win in a lot of different ways and also fail in a lot of different ways with the defect that I could see with the other characters. And I thought it was a really, really unique and a, a, a cool sort of show of like mechanics that opened the game up a lot. There's um there's actually a lot of mods for for Slay the Spire as well from the community um, and they're able to you know build on and adapt uh, all these different systems uh, and, and create more classes so it is a really extensible system that they've created um, that you know allows people to create some cool classes I think that class typifies um, something that I think is really notable about this game which is it's not afraid to uh, take things that are from that card based system. And then push them in a direction that just absolutely would not work on a tabletop game. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of little elements that that I think we haven't mentioned yet that are a part of that for me, like uh, cards that duplicate themselves in your hand, mm. or um, anger cards that, card. anger. that can be upgraded uh, from one version to another. And so all of that stuff, um, you know, is it just wouldn't be something you could replicate um, on, on paper. And it, uh, and yet it feels so natural here, which is such a, such a delight, really, really innovative and fun. Yeah. Some good little animations with that. Like there's a ton of cards that once you use it, they are removed from your deck entirely, which would be hard to manage in, uh, you know, in physical. So like, but when you play it, it pulls out of your hand and just, you know, disappears. And it's like, all right, well, that was that's gone for this turn, but or this combat, but it'll be right back there the next time. Or um, cards that will start every combat in your hand. And I was like, man, if that was a physical again, that'd be super annoying every time you have to like <laughs> go, you know, to like <laughs> go through and find it and make sure it's on the top of your deck. Uh, I think that's a yeah, great or enemies call. that clutter your deck with garbage cards. You know, yeah. all of that is stuff that you know. I don't think really would work all that. Well, I guess some of these things are things we see in some deck building games. I've played, a, I've played a few, of course, you know, uh, Dominion and Ascension are probably the two that I've played the most of, but, um, but some of that stuff just physically is impossible. Like that card anger, the card anger in this game uh, is, uh, it has pretty much got to be digital only because every time you play it, it adds a second copy of it to your de- discard pile. And you can end the game with like 30 of this card in your deck. And then by the next fight, it's back to one. 
So yeah, there's another one that is like a really interesting take on that. Um, I think I forgot what it's called. It's in the silent deck, but if you pull it, you pull two, but when you play it, it's gone forever. Hmm. So w- if you only have one in your deck, when you pull it, you'll pull two of them. But if you play both of them, it's gone. But if you don't play them, they're going to go into your discard pile. Ah. And so now the next time you hmm. play them, you have, you know, the opportunity to have four of them basically. And you could like, you could continue to multiply these exponentially, or you could play all of them and they're gone forever. Uh, and, and like, managing that you know is it worth it right now for me to play both of these because they they have zero energy that's the other part of it like everyone that you pull it's a free play so should i play both of them right now for two free attacks or should i leave one so that i get them again later or should i leave both so i can have potentially a hand that is just like a ton of free attacks and if i got a lot of card draw then maybe i could cycle through and just keep like multiplying these things so ultimately i end up with this hand that's like a ton of free attacks like that in the moment balance is crazy that that kind of leads into something i wanted to talk about that i think is kind of a, a i'm kind of mixed on on this game and that's the the interface just how this game works in terms of its interface um there's, there's some things about the interface to this game that I think are really, really good. Um, the, the thing that you just reminded me of, Nate, is that like there are a lot of there's a lot of terminology in this game, right? You know, the the the, the property that that Nate mentioned about a, a card disappearing from your hand once it's used, but then coming back when you're in your next combat is called exhaust. And, you know, the card will just say, you know, deals for damage exhaust or something like that. Right. Um, but pretty much everywhere in the game where it throws this terminology at you, it doesn't expect you to remember what exhaust means. There's going to be a kind of a tool tip and you don't even have to hover for it. It's just very smart about showing this information that you're likely to need when you're reading the text of a card or reading the text of a relic or whatever it is. Um, if it uses terminology, that's potentially something you might not know or might not remember, it always finds some place on screen to put that so that you can kind of refresh your memory on it. I was I very much appreciated that, particularly at first. Um, but there's other things about the uh, the interface that don't do it quite as well for me. I think the thing that 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 kind of throws me off about this game was that it, it's it's a game that originated on PC, so mouse and keyboard interface. And now it's transitioned to console and it's transitioned <laughs> to the Nintendo Switch, where it has to support, where it doesn't have to, but they've chosen to support both touch and gamepad operation on this game. And there are just straight up times where I I did the wrong thing because I was confused about what button was going to do what, you know? Like, there are were, there were a bunch of times in this game where, like, you know, you might hit um, Y to continue or like dismiss something or it might be like a to select and b to like go back um or x to select your your um uh, one of your potions but there's there's lots of times in the game where like that's sort of contextual so like you might have selected a card like maybe you're you maybe you're you've played a card that asks you to discard a card for example and then you've kind of entered a mode where you've got to now select the card that you want um 
And, and it has this kind of operation where you then have to navigate to a card that you want to discard, hit A to select it, it pops up into a kind of a selection interface, and then you have to hit Y to confirm and continue. And I found myself like screwing that particular operation up practically every time that it came up. I would I would literally just like, oh, okay, I've got to get the touch screen out. Like I've got to use the touch screen for this because otherwise it's going to, I'm just going to mess it up. And there were times where like I, I skipped chests accidentally because I hit Y when I didn't mean to <laughs> with no confirmation oh that's the worst thing to yeah skip. they were like <laughs> all sorts of things like that and just like the the gamepad operation on this is is thought out but there's there's a lot of complexity to this interface maybe enough that a gamepad isn't the right way to play this so i found myself reaching for the touch screen on the switch um more often than i usually do on the switch um uh, what was your guys' thoughts on Eric? What are your thoughts on like how the? I mean, y- your interface in your game was like a marvel of beautiful simplicity <laughs> of like s- s- the swipe left and right. I actually don't know whether you came out before or after rain or rains. Definitely, definitely after rains. Um, part of uh, you know, part of Meteor Fall, like I mentioned, was inspired by Dream Quest. Mm-hmm. The other was inspired by what would Reigns look like if it were more of a game and less of a story? Because yeah, Reigns is yeah. more of like an interactive fiction than a game. Right. Uh, and so I was like, oh, what if we made like, you know, one of those game books, uh, you know, like the old old school game books, like Choose Your Own Adventure style, uh, but mixed it with Reigns. Um, so yeah, Reigns range was definitely first on that. Yeah, I I, I love that about your game and the, the, the just sort of absolute elegant simplicity of that swiping mechanic. And I definitely thought about it every time I accidentally skipped <laughs> a freaking chest yeah. in this game. But like, what do you think about the uh, the, the interface of, of Slay the Spire? You played it mostly on PC, I think, right? Yeah, I played it mostly on PC. Um, I mean, I, th- I think you covered it pretty well. I, I haven't tried it on Switch, so it's hard to say. Um, I can say that, um, you know, with the game I'm, I'm working on now, um, I'm, I'm sort of encountering kind of a similar problem because Meteor Fall was uh, mobile only, but the new game, you know, I'd like to have it work on PC as well. Um, and a lot of PC players want to play on keyboards. So I'm thinking about how would I map this to keyboard? Mm-hmm. If someone hooks up a controller, how is this interface going to work with a controller? Uh, so I think I can definitely feel some of the pain that, that they probably felt when they were bringing Slay the Spire to Switch, where, you know, mouse and keyboard, it's like, okay, I got it. Uh, you know, thinking about like a D-pad or controller, like it 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 opens up a whole can of worms in terms of uh, UX issues. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I, so I, I did have one time where I skipped my entire turn by accidentally hitting Y when I had full energy. Every other time I, I, I have encountered what you're talking about, Reagan, after I will say after you've done a fair amount of runs, like the sort of, you know, input combo that you need to do to like select a card, discard it or whatever, like it becomes pretty natural. So, uh, but I definitely hit Y one time when I thought I was trying to do something else and I skipped an entire turn. I was like, well, that is horrible. Uh, you think you'd think it would have a confirmation screen in that case. Oh, something. yeah. That was one where yeah. I was like, there really ought to be a confirmation screen if you're going to skip <laughs> an entire chest. It's like, ah. Uh. Um, however, the one thing that I like continue to run in, this is this is purely Switch, I assume. But, you know, I've, been, I've played this game 100% Switch uh, undocked. So, mm-hmm. you know. Same here. In, in my hands, uh, which has been great. I love it. You know, the, the this game is a perfect play for half hour, hour, put down, pick back up, you know, you don't have to like relearn anything, right? You have your deck. Uh, 
Yeah, actually, this total sidetrack, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but like a, a funny story. Like, I I was traveling um, pretty recently. I I made a, a trip down to to Houston, and um, I was walking. I had I've been I've been playing it in advance of the episode, so I had it on my switch in my backpack, and I was walking through the through the airport, and uh, at at the terminal, uh, I saw somebody playing Slay the Spire on the switch. I was like, oh hey, look at that! And then I got on the <laughs> oh, plane, funny. and then there was an entirely different dude three rows in front of me playing Slay the Spire on the Switch. And I was like, wow, okay, they've been doing okay with this. Like, yeah. that's is- uh, that's my my dream is to uh, to see Meteor fall in the wild somewhere. Oh, uh, it yeah, hasn't nice. happened yet, but, but maybe one day. Oh, I hope that's so. Awesome. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It just has a, it is a good fit for Switch and it's a particularly good fit for that portable mode because mm-hmm. touchscreen makes sense for card games. You know, it just does. Like uh, that's why I found myself making, I found, found myself making fewer errors with the interface with the, with the yeah. touchscreen. That's funny though. I, I have literally not used the touchscreen once on hmm. switch. I've been playing entirely with the uh, joy cons, uh, you know, plugged into the switch. And the only thing that has been like a consistent sort of like minor annoyance about the UI is that it's not uncommon for the cards when you're in card select, period to cover up the hp or oh, the, yeah. the the uh the yep. yeah like the characters right so you have to like maneuver away to where your cursor is like selecting them to see their health when it's like just it would have been just nice for things to be a little bit either the cards would be a little bit smaller but even sometimes they're hard to read on the switch or maybe their hps at like above them instead of below them or something where the cards aren't covering up their HP and their like status. Yeah. I wouldn't have minded a hide the cards button. Even if it was something like, like, I don't know, like, like a, like a stick click or something that this game didn't use or something. It would have been nice if that was an option. How is the, uh, the text on the switch? I was wondering like how they adapted it. Like if it's, you know, big enough to read or if you had any readability issues, it actually seems like it adjusts the, uh, the size when you have it docked versus when you have it handheld. Huh. Um, and I, I did uh, one time run into a bug where I changed from docked to handheld mode and the uh, the text size didn't change properly and things had I had to like actually uh, redock it and undock it for it to <laughs> properly resize everything. But um, yeah, it seems like it actually handles that pretty smartly. I, I feel like in handheld mode, uh, they make good use of the space and they make good use of like minimizing things you're not going to be reading all the cards in your hand spread out uh but as you select one of them it'll it'll pop up and you can read it properly and you know so there's a lot of like uh modal elements to the interface uh but it makes it pretty clear and easy to read so i didn't have a problem yeah with it. it's pretty it's pretty clever about uh, it, text is like the least of this thing's readability issues like the text is all very readable they've done a pretty good job with that even on the 720p screen of the the handheld mode on the switch um, I did sometimes have trouble with little stuff like like the relics are real damn tiny. The the potions are probably the biggest offender. They're really small on screen, and their icons are vague enough that like if you you know you really have to go up there. Like if I forgot what a what a, a potion did, you know, it, it's it's kind of an operation to get up there and like read what it was, and and those icons for them are so tiny. Yeah, the icons for the um, enemy actions were a thing for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like. If I had, if I didn't happen to know what a like a blue blob with a, a green squiggle on top of it meant, uh, then I had to make sure I selected that enemy. Which on the when you're docked, it means pressing like 
up, up. Oh, wait, I'm in the menu. Down. Oh, wait, I've selected myself. Right, right. Oh, wait, there's two ranks of enemies. How do I? Okay, this is the one. Yeah. Okay, and now I can go and select a card or something. So, um, yeah, I think this is a game whose UI benefits enormously from mouse over, uh, which is not a thing on uh, handheld. Or, yeah, not on not on touch screens, anything. I, I did start thinking as this game went along, like, wow, this would be better on my iPad. And I, I think it's like, a, like I, I do appreciate games that let you play, like let you play either mobile on the Switch or docked on your TV. Um, and honestly, like almost every Switch game I've ever played, I've switched back and forth. That's sort of the thing of the Switch for me. Like I love playing on my big TV and sitting back on my couch. And I was never tempted to do that once with this game. This game just naturally felt like a thing to hold in my hands. Um, maybe that's because it's cards. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the the resolution of the Switch screen, it wasn't bad. Everything was readable. But I would have loved if this was on a, you know, like a 10-inch iPad screen with like retina text and everything. That would have been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I got to believe this This probably will come to to, uh, to mobile eventually. They've put a lot of thought into their touchscreen interface for this. And it works pretty well. Um, and I mean, you know, in terms of optimization and everything, like, Hey, you're already there. Probably every iPad in the world these days is more powerful than a switch in, well, maybe not, but a lot of them are. So they're, yeah. they're probably halfway there. Um, it seems right now, a lot of the development is going towards porting. So yeah. I would imagine. Well, nobody's going to spend $25 on an iPad game though. So like, it's understandable that they went switch first. Yeah. So Nate did say at the top that we were going to be discussing strategy, and I'm eager to hear these strategy tips from folks who are better at this game than me, because what I was able to glean from, you know, reading forum posts and tweets and everything about this game somewhat helped. But this is a game with a lot to think about in terms of strategy. And so I, uh, I'd love to hear from some folks who are actually doing well at it. Uh, what what helps and uh, what <laughs> advice would you give to people just getting started? And what are your hottest, most advanced strategy tips? <laughs> Ooh, hot advanced <laughs> strategy tips. Um, give us the game facts. Yeah. So the I'll, game facts. I'll, uh, nice. Um, so I will start and we've kind of touched on a little bit about it, uh, throughout this episode. And one of them is thinking of it as a resource management game and recognizing that, your primary resource above everything is your health. Hmm. It is obviously it's the thing that decides whether you get to continue playing the game or not. Right. So when you're at zero, it's done. There's no other resource that has a higher impact than your health. And so anything and everything you can do to preserve or increase your health is often going to be the right choice. So there are going in my experience, there are going to be times where uh, things that, even if it's one or two damage, it's probably still worth preventing if you can, because you're going to have to do something to get that one or two back at some point. And that will come at the cost of likely something else in improving your deck, which is what you need to do to ultimately like win the game. You need to have a good deck and a lot of health, but a lot of health is how you get to have a good deck. So things that increase your max HP are incredibly valuable. There are going to be opportunities where it's like you can get a rare card or you can do this or you can do that. And there's going to be something that's like increase max HP by five. And that's going to feel like not a lot, but uh, 
in my opinion, it's worth it because that is five more damage than you could take before, before the game is over. So anything and everything you can do to increase and preserve your health, the better. Uh, after that, energy is how you get to do things, right? So taking the having the ability to increase your energy at the cost of many other things is still going to be worth it because every turn you get to go versus the enemy going is better, right? So there are going to be relics and things that seem like they have a big downside to take that give you more energy, but energy is on every turn. Whereas maybe being able to upgrade at a Smith is going to be only a couple of times, right? So increasing the amount of things you get to do on a turn are going to be incredibly valuable. Um, And then after that, so it's like energy, it's health, then it's energy. And then the last thing I can think of is like opportunity cost. So that's a, a general sort of like card game. Like every time you pull a card is the opportunity to add a card to your hand, right? And if you're adding cards that don't fit with what you're doing, you're pulling that card instead of pulling a better card or a different card. So you need to be thinking about every time you add a card to your deck, you are decreasing the likelihood that you're at, that you will pull a different card from your deck. So for me, having a very small and tight and like controlled deck that every card I pull is worthwhile and part of what I want to do on a round is more important than having like cool cards that do a lot of damage or whatever. Right. So I found myself the, the vast majority of time after every time you kill a monster, you have the opportunity to add a card to your deck. I was saying no, like 75% of the time. It's like, I think that's like a, a common beginner mistake. Um, and that's just good advice for deck builders in general is to be really thoughtful about what you're adding. Like, um, you know, in a lot of games, adding something is, is sort of a, a bonus, like, you, you know, a prize that you get at the end. But in, in deck builders, um, you know, you, you could ruin your, you know, quote unquote engine like that. Um, you know, instead of having a small, well-tuned deck, you have a bunch of, you know, random assortment of cards. It's not going to cycle very well. Uh, so I think that's like one of the, the best tips for a new Slay the Spire player mm-hmm. is you don't have to say yes to the cards. Absolutely. A card might look great, but it might really just be sugar in your gas tank. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, like think when I pull this card, will I want to play this over the cards that I have, especially early when you only have three energy and some of those cards cost two. It's like, yeah, that is your entire turn basically when you're playing a two energy card right so it's it better be good and then when you're also making your decisions to upgrade cards i generally would look at the energy cost because if i'm going to play a two energy card it better be as good as possible so i often worked my way from that if it's upgrading the most expensive cards down to the right to the less picking the cards you do want to add if i can extend that just a little bit is there are some rules of thumb that I think could help beginners and help me make good choices in what cards to add. Cause I made a lot of dumb mistakes uh, early on in my, in my playthroughs. Um, there are different kinds of cards. Uh, there's attacks, there's defense cards, uh, there's skills and there's powers. And 
there's also different rarities of cards, which is like common, uncommon, and rare. The power cards have an effect every turn once you play them. So there's there's cards that the runs where I did really well were runs where I found a power card early on in the run and built the rest of my deck around it. Mm. So the my absolute best run was with the card uh, Demon Form for the Ironclad, which... Oh, that, that rules. It adds strength every turn. Um, and there are other cards. There's a card that just doubles your strength, which is decent, uh, but if you don't have a reliable way to gain at least some strength, it's it's not great. But if you can if you can start with a card like Demon Form, um, and in the case of Demon Form, I managed to get it uh, very early on, uh, then you have a real plan for your deck, and you can really evaluate every card in terms of what, is it going to help me to snowball on strength, or is it just going to be slowing that strategy down? So. Um, Grab those powers, uh, get them early, and then the other cards can be kind of viewed through the lens of those of those cards. Same thing with the relics. Yeah, and reduce. Uh, so, so, like my general strategy is like whenever there's a shop, the first thing I'm doing is well, first I'm seeing if there's a relic I can afford that seems to have a good impact. Other than that, I am paying to take a card out of my deck. Mm-hmm. Same. Uh, yeah. You start with I think it's. Five basic uh, attack cards and five basic uh, block cards. And I usually start with the basic attack cards, removing those from my deck because later in the game, so example like the Ironclad, and I think most of them, the basic attack card does six damage. Well, when you're later in the game, six damage is basically nothing. And so every time you pull that card, you are losing the opportunity to pull a card that you have actually chosen and gained and maybe upgraded so every shop and it and there's a ton of uh you know those events that we've talked about that give you the option to maybe add a card or uh whatever but often it's you can may also remove a card i'm choosing remove a card like 95 percent of the time totally i would much rather remove a card from my deck than add a card Mm -hmm. uh and so some of the best runs i've had have ended with me having only a couple of those starter cards and the rest are all these cards that I've hand chosen. Um, so like every time you hit a merchant, remove a card if you can. Totally. Uh, one other um, kind of, this is maybe a, a little bit more um, advanced tip. Um, and it's something that kind of comes only experience with experience uh, playing the game. Uh, but it definitely helps to, you know, pay attention and, and sort of learn what types of enemies you need to be prepared for. So, one, for instance, one one problem I normally have in a run is, uh, you know, focusing too much on uh, single target damage and not enough on AOE. Uh, there's a couple of bosses, for instance, it'll summon minions and, and things like that. Uh, so it's important to, you know, figure out, okay, if I run into one of these, you know, monsters or bosses that uh, summon minions, how am I going to deal with the minions? Do I need some AOE? Uh, when you, uh, going back to the map also, um, at the top of the map, it, and when you first load the map, it kind of scrolls down. But the the graphic at the top of the map uh, tells you what the boss is going to be. Oh, um, you know, I did not pick yeah. up on that. Oh, it's it's important. Yeah, and at each each floor, there's like three floors, or I guess four floors now. Uh, but each one has three different 
possible bosses. Uh, and it's important to know what that boss is. Um, one of my favorite builds with the the silent is uh, I think it's called like a shiv build where it's like a you know a cheap zero cost card that does a little bit of damage and you spawn like you know a hundred copies of it. Uh, one of the bosses on the third floor is called the Time Eater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has a mechanic where after you play 12 cards, uh, your turn ends, uh, which you know isn't too bad if you have like a normal deck with powerful attacks. But if you're spamming a bunch of tiny attacks, uh, you're gonna you're gonna have a bad time against someone who you know penalizes you for playing too many cards. Uh, so it is important to you know pay attention to the types of enemies and pay attention to what boss you're gonna be up against because uh, you might you know tweak your deck in different ways based on that. Yeah, that's a really good yeah. point. I didn't actually realize that. I I knew it had like a big picture up there at the top, but I, when I first got started in the game, I didn't even realize there were multiple possibilities for the bosses. And then once I realized that, I guess I didn't put it together with the the pictures of the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking yeah. at the map, uh, looking at the map <laughs> ahead of time, very very important. Uh, you can plan your route up, and and having um having a path all the way up there that you know includes the right number of elite enemies and the right number of uh, campfires and things like that, I think is definitely something you should be doing. Yeah. yeah and and uh, so we haven't really talked about potions and won't go too much into it, but like use them like anything you oh, can yeah. do to gain the edge in any single combat you should do. Don't hold on to that stuff. If you're so example, there's a potion that gives you 12 block. If you're in a, a combat uh, in a turn where you're about to take, like 12 plus damage and you can't prevent it and you're holding on to a 12 block potion do it now because you, like again your health is your primary resource and you can prevent it now who knows what I made that mistake so many times sitting on potions until I was receiving potions that I couldn't keep yeah yep you know <laughs> yeah and you feeling. just don't you don't know what opportunity you're going to have to use those in the future and 12 health now is the same as 12 health against the boss. Right. So pre- use it, prevent it now. Years of playing, uh, you know, too many JRPGs has sort of taught us to uh, hoard our potions because you never know oh, when yeah, you might yeah. use one. But, End but the this game is not with 999 game. high, uh, high health <laughs> elixirs or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. We all finished Skyrim with like an absurd amount of consumables, right? Right. This yeah. game, like the worst thing you can do is have to throw away a potion because again, it's a resource management game. And if, you are literally throwing away a resource and you're wasting it, right? So use them. Yeah, it's hard to um, remember to use them, but absolutely. That was something I ran yeah. into a lot. And I, I had only just started to kind of turn the corner on figuring that out. And that's, yeah. that's a good tip. Every turn should be, how do I, like my general mindset was, can I mitigate, can I, can I reduce the amount of damage I'm going to take to zero? If so, I do that. Then I apply damage. If I can't, Reduce it to zero, reduce it to as much as I can, uh, and then do damage. And and the, like the game, most almost every single enemy will have sort of a cycle between attacks and then like buffs and things. And so you just reduce the damage and then on it on turns where they're not going to attack, that's when you like waylay them. Now there are a few monsters, and this would be more technical, where like you actually it's gonna be- benefit you to like kill them as fast as possible and just like eat the damage. But like ninety that big red dude, the big red dude. That's the one I was thinking of the yep. most. He's like a big, uh, like looks like the devil with a big axe. Uh, that knob, one, I think. Yeah, that one actually. You actually just want to deal as much damage as possible until it dies. Like basically everything else, you want to 
reduce the damage you're going to take to zero because it just it's like everything is just chipping away just chipping away chipping away till you die and also because you know what's about to happen this is uh, uh, one of the most disappointing thing about this game is the feeling of helplessness when you see that they're attacking you for 12, <laughs> you have 10, you have 10 <laughs> HP, and there's literally nothing you can do except for hit Y for next turn. Uh, just... <laughs> what, one thing I think is uh, pretty remarkable about this game is, you know, we talk a lot about having, uh, you know, bad RNG and not getting the cards you want and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the players that are really good at this, like the, the people playing it on Twitch, uh, can win actually win pretty consistently even on uh, the high ascension levels. Uh, yeah. and I don't think we talked about ascension uh, on this show yet. No, uh, but it's you know basically a you know a kind of increasing level of difficulty. Um, and anyway, so so you have players that you know win you know more or less every time, and so uh, you know I think it is possible to you know get good at this game. It's not. You know, it is a card game. Randomness is going to be a factor, but it's not as big a factor, I think, as it first seems. Yeah. And and that's the other, like, the bigger picture strategy in this one definitely comes with time. But, like, you have to take what comes to you rather than trying to decide what is good. So, um, you know, we were talking about earlier, like, the one, the example I was giving, like, where curse cards suddenly became good, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you have to adjust your strategy to where curse cards are not good and you can adjust everything. And instead of going in, like, okay, I am playing the silent. So this run, because the silent uses poison, I want to make sure that I use all poison. Well, there are going to be builds with the silent that use very little poison. You just have to deal with what comes your way. So we're about to move on to our classic segment, what's making us happy this week. But before I do that, I I, I want to take this opportunity. I mean, we don't often have uh folks like Eric on the show. And I wanted to, first of all, just say like, I'm very excited about your upcoming game, Meteor Fall, Crummit's Tale. Um, and I mean, I, I liked Meteor Fall a lot. I was not, at, I mean, I, I not my genre, so I never beat it, but I know that folks who love this style of game, like, like Nate, like absolutely were all over it. And I was very charmed by its art style and everything. And I'm excited to see a new game with some new mechanics and everything. I wondered if you take a quick second, tell us a little bit, of, first of all, when is it coming? Do you know? Yeah. And also uh, like tell our listeners a little bit what, what to expect. Yeah. So, um, so the, the first game we released was called a uh, meteor fall journeys. Um, and you know, that, that one's already out there. Uh, the new game is called Meteor Fall Crummit's Tale. And, and so as the name implies, it also takes place in the Meteor Fall universe. Um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to create a new game in the same universe to kind of build on the, you know, unique art style and, and lore of the characters and things like that. Uh, but I didn't want to just do a, you know, complete sequel. So I started, you know, thinking about, you know, different mechanics and, and things like that. Um, so Crummit's Tale is, uh, it's also you know, like Meteor Fall, it's also sort of a deck building roguelike game. So it has, uh, you know, a very similar game loop where, you know, you start with some basic cards and you, you know, kill monsters and you get gold and you get better cards and get a better deck. Um, and, you know, it actually, it actually, uh, you know, uh, it was inspired by a lot of the mechanics in, in Slay the Spire that we've been talking about. So, for instance, um, you know, I was really intrigued by the idea of, of perfect info. Um, and so in the game, when, when the mantra is attacking, uh, you know, it shows what attack they're going to do. So you can be thoughtful about, um, you know, how you want to adapt to it. Uh, the game itself is played out on a three by three grid. Um, and the grid includes things like monsters, items, and abilities. Uh, and the way that that dungeon is, is constructed is, um, it, 
it takes the the monster cards, which are part of the dungeon deck, uh, and it shuffles all of your cards into that. So your items and abilities that you've acquired, it shuffles them out and lays them uh, out on this three by three grid. Uh, and so as you uh, you know fight monsters, you gain gold and can pick up um, tiles, items, and abilities uh, from your dungeon to put them in your inventory. Uh, from there, it's almost um, you know almost puzzle like where you know the Items and abilities that you acquire can be used to fight monsters, and you're trying to figure out an efficient way to actually do that uh, because you know there's only so many items and abilities in the dungeon deck, uh, and so each one that you use or discard uh, is you know a resource, and and trying to figure out how you use your resources efficiently is important. Uh, it also borrows from the uh, relic system. So in Crummit's Tale, we have something called perks which are sort of passive bonuses that, uh, you know, change rules of the game. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier with uh, Slay the Spire, uh, I think having a, a large number of perks in particular is really important to have each run feel different and fresh mm-hmm. uh, and to make the game interesting. Uh, so so that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and in terms of when it's coming out, uh, we're trying to launch something on Steam Early Access uh, this year, if possible. Uh, I think Steam, the Steam page right now shows November 1st, so we'll, we'll see if we actually hit that. Uh, we definitely have some some work to do before we get there. But uh, yeah, we, we plan to do that. Um, part of the reason for early access was, uh, you know, with Meteor Fall, uh, since it was released about a year and a half ago, I've continued to do updates and iterate on it. Uh, and I think the early access model uh, is... It, it, it kind of aligns well with my philosophy around development where, uh, you know, I think when you when you first release something um, or when you're first designing a game, uh, you don't you, you're in some ways you're you're designing the game. And in some ways, you're also just learning the game at the same time as mm. the people playing it. So, for instance, in Meteor Fall, a lot of the original cards that I created, uh, I think, are, are, are they're quite boring now compared to some of the cards I've developed more recently. Uh, and I had the benefit of a lot of like fan input um, and just playing the game more myself. I got better at the game and, and sort of understood what cards were good and what made a card good or not. Uh, and so, you know, I've, I've kind of iterated a lot on Meteor Fall. Uh, and so I really like, you know, early access sort of formalizes that model where, you know, it's sort of expected that you're interacting with the community and you're getting feedback and you're tweaking it based on feedback. Um, and it's, you know, people sort of appreciate that, hey, this isn't the final design. Um, people can have input, which is fun. Yeah, and I, I imagine it helps a lot with uh, with balance. You know, it's something like a card game where balance is so extremely important. Like having it played by hundreds or thousands of, but oh, you know, hopefully of people. <laughs> yeah. uh, really, I can imagine helping a ton with just sort of figuring out how how this game actually plays once it's out in the wild. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the hardest parts, um, and where I get stuck a lot is on the balance. Like coming up with a new card is easy. I, I can probably implement a, a new card, uh, you know, like twenty minutes or so. Um, but but testing it out, seeing how it interacts with other cards, um, you know, is, is pretty difficult. Uh, the other thing is, you know, and when you're when you're playing your own game that you just designed, uh, you're you're also not very good at your own game, and so it's hard to tell if if something's overpowered or not you know, strong enough or, or, you know, something like that, because you, you you just don't know, you know, what's good. And, and you sort of learn that uh, along with the, the people playing it. So, 
Um, you know, I, I think having that input is really important. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, and I mean, it clearly was a model that worked well for Slay the Spire. They spent uh, years in in early access, and when they finally released on uh, on Nintendo Switch, as latecomers felt like, "Wow, what a what a complete game that sprung fully <laughs> formed out of nowhere." Yeah. I think um, I think another thing that uh, you know really helped with Slay the Spire, and part of the reason I was interested in, in early access is uh, for like a small indie game. You know, one of the most important things is just getting people to know that you exist. Uh, probably a lot of people, you know, could potentially be interested in you know a, a given indie game uh, if they knew that it was out there. Um, but but getting that visibility is important, uh, and having something like early access where you're sort of building some momentum and hype and a, a fan base. I think it's really important uh, before you get to the the full release. Uh, with Meteor Fall, uh, you know, I, I didn't do early access when I launched the original one on mobile, but I did have a pretty big uh, beta community of I think like two hundred or so testers. Mm. Uh, most of them I recruited from the Touch Arcade forum, uh, and you know, I had a this built in in fan base who would you know go evangelize the game on different gaming sites. Uh, and, you know, I, I attribute a lot of the success, the initial success, especially of Meteor Fall to these beta testers who, who kind of went out and, and spread the word about the game and, uh, you know, got it on people's radar. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits, both in terms of, you know, balance and feedback, as well as just, you know, having fans that, that care about the game. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to uh, to it launching. I can't wait to check it out. And I'll definitely be there for the early access because I can't wait to uh Hopefully, be a little better at this uh, at uh, at the the future game than I was at Meteor Fall, but I'm <laughs> I'm very excited about it. Um, so, we have a segment at the end of our show here. I mentioned a moment ago called "What's Making You Happy This Week," and you can guess what it's about. And uh, Nate, what's making you happy this week? Sure. So, uh, keep it short, keep it simple. So, one of my favorite uh, musical artists, Chance the Rapper. Uh, put out on uh, Spotify. Finally, I mean, I already had these, but it just it makes a difference to me when it's on like easy streaming services. Put out his first two uh, mixtapes or albums, uh, Ten Day or Ten Days and Acid Rap. They're on Spotify now, and that has been making me so happy. Listening to almost nothing but that since they came out, and he's got a new album coming out next week. So, uh, big fan, and finally able to easily listen to. Uh, the earlier stuff has been great. You know, I've never really been turned on a chance the rapper, but now that you mentioned that, I will go and check it out now that it's on Spotify. Yeah, start with Acid Rap. That's my favorite All right. album. All right. So pretty cool. That's awesome. The thing that's making me happy this week, it takes a little bit of explaining. I'll try to keep this brief. Um, I Nate and I have had a whole conversation about how my I'm, I'm very into retro games. I'm into retro game hardware. Um, my, uh, my whole approach to that stuff is that like, I was, I was, you know, we did okay, but I was not the richest kid that I knew when I was a kid. Um, but now that I'm an adult, I get to basically have the toys of the richest kid that you would have ever known back in the nineties. That's the, that's the exciting, wonderful thing about being an adult. Right. But one of the things that I always wanted when I was a kid and never thought I would be able to have for various reasons was a Neo Geo. Um, Neo Geos, if you aren't, Aware of them, they were an extremely ex- well. There was a arcade system, so you you know have Art Neo Geo arcade cabinets with fancy, expensive arcade hardware inside, and also there was a home version that was functionally identical. And the games were shockingly expensive. So, and they're still shockingly expensive today. The Neo Geo AES, the uh, the home version, was hundreds of dollars. Each game cost 
several times what a game would have cost for the Sega Genesis, my equivalent at the time. Um, They're very, very expensive, and they've only gone up as the collector market has caught on to them. But so I thought I'll never own a Neo Geo. And um, then I saw a video on uh, on YouTube recently, which I'll link to from a uh, YouTuber called Smoke Monster, who's uh, kind of a good guy to follow if you're into retro game hardware. And he's talking about how actually, I mean, yes, Neo Geo stuff is very expensive, but if you uh, if you know what to look for, you can get a Neo Geo setup that's pretty good for pretty cheap. And so he turned me on to the fact that you can go on sites like AliExpress and get a very bare bones Neo Geo board shipped to you from China for between thirty and sixty dollars, um, which is crazy cheap. And then games for the Neo Geo are shockingly expensive, but the arcade versions are usually cheaper than the the home console versions. And there are now uh, knockoff Chinese multi-carts, which are mostly bad, but fine if you know what to expect. Uh, so altogether, with the right setup, you can get a pretty functional Neo Geo actual hardware setup to play for somewhere in the range of one to two hundred dollars, depending on options, which is astonishing to me, given that I thought getting into Neo Geo stuff would cost maybe minimum $600 and probably upwards from there. So I've ordered a bunch of stuff. I will keep you all updated. Some of it started to trickle in, but this stuff is on slow boats from China. So I've got like, I've got like the, the BIOS chip that I'm going to install in the Neo Geo when it arrives sitting here on my desk. That's where I'm at with this right now. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot of exciting anticipation for me and lots of pouring over forums for details, that sort of thing. So it's the kind of project that I really love. So I, yeah. that's what's making me happy this week is I'm hopefully about to be living the dream of the 90s today. It's very exciting. Right. Reagan, you said you're going to keep us all updated, and I'm so glad because I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep until I. <laughs> you're <hear>. telling me <laughs> uh, how this all comes together. Yeah. Do, yeah. It, do you have to like build it yourself? Like you talk about a BIOS chip? Is oh, it like a, yes, you know it's simply required? So like okay. you know you're buying you're buying a bare board, right? And so it doesn't yeah. have things like uh, like power input. It doesn't have things like controller inputs. So you need to buy a, um, you need to buy what's called a super gun, which is the coolest (laughs) name for a fairly mundane thing. (laughs) Super gun is a, uh, is a thing that you connect a standard arcade board to that kind of replaces all of the other hardware that would be part of an arcade machine. So it gives you a video out to plug into your television. It gives you uh, controller inputs to simulate the arcade hardware, like control panels and so on. Um, so that's probably the most expensive part of this whole setup is buying a super gun. Um, but then I get to be someone who owns a super gun, which sounds <laughs> very cool. It sounds like a, a like a really complicated Lego set, like, you, uh, <laughs> like an adult Lego set. It sounded to me like something out of Buck Rogers, but like it's or, yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> I, I actually looked into this, and no one is sure where the name Supergun comes from. That's just what people call these things. It's not like a brand name or anything. It's just oh, a thing to plug your arcade board into a television. Of course, that's called a Supergun. Why? No, it's one gotta knows. be. It's gotta be a bad translation. I was gonna <laughs> say something lost. Something lost in translation. Probably. Yeah. Uh, or improved in translation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shane, what is making you happy this week? Well, it's it's very simple, Reagan. Um, the uh, this last week, I found an excuse, a reason uh, to rewatch the movie The Thirty Sixth Chamber of Shaolin, <laughs> and that is making me extremely happy this week. Uh, rules. The, the reason is, I you know, I, with my with my Dungeons and Dragons group, I've got a monk. Uh, and I know I've got a uh, training montage in my near future uh, for said monk. 
Uh, so what do you do? You rewatch the 1978 Hong Kong Kung Fu film uh, that basically creates the training montage as a cinematic masterpiece. And um, for those of you who have not seen the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, uh, this is a movie about a young student who his family and his loved ones are caught up in a rebellion against the Manchurian government. And there's these corrupt and brutal uh, government officials that are uh, killing his family and friends and destroying their village. And he seeks refuge in a Shaolin temple. And he believes that if he can learn the secrets of Shaolin Kung Fu and share them with the people, then the people can defend themselves against this brutal Manchu government. And uh, most of the movie is spent uh, with him basically going through the 36 chambers, uh, the 36 lessons of Shaolin Kung Fu, uh, and then going on to found the 36th chamber, which is him teaching teaching the masses and and leading a, a, a rebellion. Uh, the movie absolutely rules. Uh, it kind of creates the genre of Kung Fu films. Um, I have not watched it in many years, and going back to it was really, really nice. Uh, I get to you know, see all of these crazy scenes again, like, you know, he's in a dark room and they have a beam of light bouncing off of all the different rotating pillars and he has to strike each rotating pillar. There's a lot of tremendous gimmicks uh, in this really, really, really great, really great gimmicks and really awesome uh, fighting sequences. So I honestly can't recommend this movie enough. Awesome. I, I have to check that out again. Eric, what's making you happy this week? <laughs> cool. I had I had two. Uh, one I'll mention quickly, and then one uh, I'll chat a little bit more about. Um, the first one was the uh, HBO show Chernobyl. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, I don't, you know, one of the reasons I listen to Short Game is because I don't have as much time as I used to. Uh, and one thing I like about Chernobyl compared to other shows is that it's a short show. It's only five episodes. Uh, you don't have to watch like, you know, 10 seasons to find out what happened. Um, so, you know, you can get through it in a weekend or something. But it's it's very well done and uh, I thought very informative. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, the other is uh, the game Underlords, uh, which is the Valve version of Auto Chess. Um one of the reasons I like it, uh, and it, it's actually kind of relevant to this show, is that it's also kind of a, a deck builder uh, kind of game. Uh, and so, you know, you you start with a small army and you're trying to build it over time and come up with synergies between the, the different pieces. Uh, it took me took me a little bit of time to get into the auto chess genre. I thought it was kind of stupid at first um, with, you know, this placing units and having them fight each other. I didn't really get it. Uh, after sticking with it a little bit more, um, you know, I found out that it's actually pretty fun. And so uh, I've been playing that, playing a lot of Underlords. That's um, a, That was kind of my yeah. Im- impression of the auto chess genre at first, too. Is Do you think Underlords is the place to to try that genre out? Is that is that the starting point for people who may be skeptical about it? It's it's hard. It's hard to say. I think. um you know, it, I might start a religious war if I say one auto chess is better than the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have uh, I have other friends who like uh, Team Fight Tactics, which is the League of Legends version. Um, one thing I like about um, you know this version of Auto Chess uh, Underlords is uh, it's playable on um, mobile and PC. So some of the other Auto hmm. Chesses are PC only or mobile only. Uh, this I'm not sure if this is 
the only one that's playable on all the platforms, but it, it is very portable, uh, which I like. Um, I think if anyone is trying to get into the games, one thing that helped me was just reading about uh, like builds that are effective. So, you know, similar to Slay the Spire, having knowledge of um, knowledge of the mechanics and what's actually good and, and kind of working towards that while you're learning the game is helpful. Uh, and so, you know, a couple of short YouTube videos helped me get a better understanding of, you know, how to play the game and start having fun with it. Hmm. You know, I actually did not know this was on mobile. And now that I know that it is, I'm much more inclined to give it a try. Um, I'm probably going to check this out on my iPad tonight. This looks awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Let me know how you liked it. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. Uh, you can find our show on the internet at www.theshortgame.net, where you'll find a contact form. You'll also find links to our Patreon. Uh, I mentioned it, hopefully, at the top of the show. Uh our, we have we have a Patreon now, and uh, you can find that from our website or patreon.com slash the short game. A brief explanation of why we're doing that and what this is all about. Um, we've been doing this show for five years, and it's always been a labor of love. It's not something we do, you know, to make a business out of it or anything. It's the most fun part of my week. But uh, it is also something where occasionally we've had to make choices uh, about what we cover and how, um, partly based on the fact that there, you know, this, there is a budget to this show and we want to expand the kinds of games that we can cover on this show. You know, every time we, uh, decide to cover a game, we're not the sort of people that usually get press codes. And even if we are, most of that sort of thing is set up for sending out one code to a podcaster outlet. And we're not going to be able to do this sort of coverage where we play and discuss as a group. Uh, so we need to be able to buy games and we want to be able to buy the kinds of games that people are most interested in. The kinds of games that you're going to be interested in, we want to buy them in a timely manner. We don't want to have to wait for them to go on sale. So we need your help to expand the kinds of games that we're covering and also to do things like pay our increasing server fees, all the sorts of things that you expect that podcasts pay money to do. That said, what we're most excited about with with Patreon is building a community. Uh, anyone who backs our Patreon or supports our Patreon at any level gets access to our Discord. Uh, we've always used Discord or other chat tools like it to kind of plan shows, talk about the games we're playing as we play them. It's kind of how the show comes together in the background. And we want to open that up to, uh, to our community. So if you're interested in chatting with us about short games in real time as we're playing them, as you're playing them, getting in on the sort of planning side of the short game, or just chatting and making jokes. We've been having a great time for the last week uh, chit-chatting with people like Eric, and uh, it's been really great. So uh, uh, support our Patreon. Even a dollar a month is a big help to us, and uh, then you'll get access to our Discord where we can chit-chat about the kinds of games that we're playing, and we really hope to see you there. So thank you so much for, for your support if you're already supporting. If you haven't, take a second. There'll be a link in the show notes or you can go to patreon.com slash the short game. Yeah, and so any tier, anyone who uh, supports us gets access to the Discord, but we also have a $5 tier that has just an untold amount of benefits and perks and riches <laughs> truly beyond, untold beyond uh untold beyond because any. we haven't told anyone what they are yet uh that is yeah. that is something i should mention um you know we we're our patreon is brand new we're trying to keep things manageable but we do have that second tier eric is one of our five dollar patrons and we thank him for it very much um but uh what we're planning there is that uh, we are planning things like additional content and uh other uh, other things that will hopefully add some value to that um and if you are are part of our Patreon, we call this the shortlist, which 
because I we thought, are funny. I fought hard for that. <laughs> Nobody else wanted to let me call it that, but I I was the one who set up the page, so I called it the shortlist, yeah. goddammit. And uh, if you're part of the shortlist, then you'll be part of planning what this Patreon means in the future, including uh, getting your say about what sorts of additional content or whatever else we're going to be producing that's going to be part of that. So uh, we're looking yes. forward to that too. And included on that list of, again, untold amount of benefits is a shout out on the show. So I have to take a moment to shout out Michael Smith, Jeremy, Eric Ferraro, and the person known simply as Simple Beat. Thank you all for joining the shortlist. Uh, it truly, truly means a lot to us. Thank you. It really, really, it really does. does. Particularly this very first week. Like this is you know big support. So thank you, Eric. Thank you, everybody else who's backed our Patreon. It's it meant a lot. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw how how well the Patreon had done in the first week, I I shouted, "Mom, I made it!" <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling everyone. Well, as a professional podcaster now, yeah. my uh, yes. my you know my responsibilities <laughs> have changed. Yeah. So. Yeah. I thought the uh, yeah I thought the Discord has been pretty fun so far. Um, when I when I first read the perk of you know getting access to Discord, which is you know a common perk um, for for podcasts, um, I didn't know if it was just sort of like a general chat or something. Uh, and I guess I was pretty surprised that it was actually like the planning channels that you guys are using to coordinate and, and talk about the stuff. It's not like a hey, you're just chatting with other patrons and stuff. Um, you you sort of get to you know see how the sausage is made so to speak of of planning the episode which i thought was pretty fun uh, and informative yeah yeah and i mean that this is a kind of a book club style podcast and that's sort of where the book club meets so if you want to be part of that book club thank you uh, for supporting us um so you can also find our show on the web at www.theshortgame.net. You can find our show on Twitter at underscore short game. You can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Nate, where can people find you? On Twitter at Nate S-T-L. Shane, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at 8BitShane, but mainly you can find me on the Discord. Yes, actually, of course, you can (laughs) find us all there. And Eric, where can people find you and your games? Yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter as Slothworks. Um, Works is spelled W-E-R-K-S for some unknown reason that I decided a long time ago. Um, So that's one place. uh, You know, I'm I'm on the Discord as well. I'm also on Reddit uh, as, you know, also Slothworks. We have a Meteor Falls subreddit, uh, which is a great place to talk about the game. Uh, We have a Discord as well. Um, Meteor Fall uh, Journeys can be found on iOS and Android. Uh, and for Crummit's Tale, we have uh, a Steam page up. Um, if it looks like something you'd be interested in, uh, you know, wishlist it. The wishlist do help us get visibility. Uh, and Crummit's Tale will eventually uh, come to iOS and Android as well uh, when it's fully released. And I can't recommend the first Meteor Fall highly enough. If you like Slay the Spire and you want something like it to play on your phone, I think it is one of the best possible options for that. And it is uh, $3.99, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I played right. an absolute ton of it. I think I beat it with all the four main characters, and it was satisfying the entire way. Yeah. So it was awesome. It's sort of a, uh, yeah, it's sort of like a, a Slay the Spire light. Uh, it doesn't have quite the same depth, but, uh, you know, it's a portrait mode game. It's playable in one hand. Uh, you can get through a run in like 20 minutes. So um, I've heard a lot of people, you know, play during commutes or, you know, when they have a break or they're waiting in line at a store. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it makes some, uh, you know, compromises to to fit into that, you know, format and time span. 
Uh, but I think it's a great light version if Slay the Spire is something you enjoy. Yeah, I reinstalled it in order to kind of refresh my memory of it in order to, to talk about it today. And I, I immediately fell back into it and I was like, oh, no, wait, wait, I have to play more Slay the Spire. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a tough choice there for a bit. So I drive to work. Can I play it during my commute? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, you could probably play without looking at the screen. So uh, yeah, you might, you might be able to. I don't know how well you'd do. But <laughs> get, you heard it here. Give first. it a try. Report back. So thank you so much, <laughs> listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Short Game.